0: Welcome to Motif Magazine, Between the Lines. Motif Magazine is your number one source for all things local. Whether it's news, music, food, theater, or events, we've got you covered. Our print edition comes out the first week of every month. Now, Between the Lines, we take you a little deeper into our latest issue. My name's Rob Smith, news editor, and today we're interviewing the guest editor of our latest issue, April Brown. April is the co-director of the Langston Hughes Community Poetry Reading Project, an annual celebration to the famed Harlem Renaissance poet, now in its 26th year. In this interview, April tells us her creative process in the issue's featured section, and the
1: women she chose to
0: champion. April, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Rob. Can you tell me,
0: actually, let's start here. What's your What, what's your, what is your first memory with Motif magazine? I'm assuming you didn't hear of us for the first time when we (laughs) offered you a guest (laughs) editing position.
1: So no, last year, actually, Christopher Johnson was the guest editor. And he asked me to do an article on Rose Weaver. And we had too much fun. And I had a conversation with Emily about where are the women's voices in this issue. And a year later, I get a call while I am in Ghana saying, well, actually, it was an email saying, April, I think we need to have you as the guest editor. And it literally, and I write about it in the issue, was something that I had put into the universe. It took 48 hours for it to manifest, kind of magical slash, you know, the universe is listening. Was it one of your New Year's resolutions? It was, I don't do New Year's resolutions. What I do is I do something called a vision board. And so that's how I kind of put the whole year together with pictures. Like a third grader. W- was <laughs> this your first time? T- <laughs>
0: was, it, was this your first time doing anything uh, related to publishing, writing, editing?
1: No, in fact, when I was in college, I um, studied uh, mass communications until about my third year, when we had this professor who said, "If you are going to graduate from our class, you have to publish five articles." And I thought, "That's a lot of pressure." <laughs> I don't think so. And so <laughs> I immediately left mass communications and went into um, history. I started studying history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: wow. I had the opposite effect. I started as a history major <laughs> intending to be a history teacher at Rhode Island College. Oh, my gosh. And then they put me in the, cl- they put you in the classroom for like every education class you take. And then I, they put me in the classroom in both times. I went, this is not for me. <laughs> I don't have, this is too soul crushing for me. I could not do this. Oh my gosh. And so I, I joined the media center. <laughs> what did, uh, did you go to college? Did you go to college in Rhode Island?
1: No, I did not. Well, I started at CCRI and um, I did a semester at Brown, which was kind of interesting. And then I went to Howard University and then graduated from American University.
0: Are you from Rhode Island originally?
1: I am. My grandmother would say we have been here for 10,000 years <laughs> as we were growing up up. We're um, Narragansett. And so got some history with the land. The
0: town of Narragansett or the uh, Narragansett
1: tribe? The the, the Narragansett tribe.
0: Narragansett tribe. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little about that?
1: Well, um, I don't know what I could tell you other than um, as long as I can remember. When I was a little girl, we lived in, um, what was it? North Kingstown. And I just remember we would go to um, they weren't powwows, but there were these events. And I can remember us not uh, celebrating Thanksgiving. In fact, it was this thing where we would go and be a part of ceremony. And it was actually kind of sad funeral music. And then um, my parents were at URI at the time. And so I think I was about six when we moved up to Providence. And then it just kind of shifted. And you know, it was my grandmother who kind of Kept the information about who we are and our ethnic background. But my grandmother's brother was a sachem, and I remember seeing pictures and hearing stories about him when he was, um, you know, speak and gather and have meetings.
0: What was your favorite story about him?
1: (laughs) My favorite story was that. He didn't take a lot of shit, right? <laughs> that's, you know, and he was kind of a hard ass, right? Um, but he was, I always understood him as being the sweet man, or at least that's how my grandmother talked about him.
0: <laughs> Is there a specific instance where he didn't take no any from? shit?
1: Yeah, so there was, um, there was, a, actually, it was a, a p- kind of a political thing. He was, people were trying to get access to the land. And um, there's a story where he got a shotgun and kind of said, no, this land is ours, and kind of protected the land. I don't know what the end result was, but <laughs> it was, it sounds very dramatic.
0: <laughs> uh, so, so you graduated from Howard University. What did you do after No, graduated? I graduated
1: from American oh, University. Sorry, I went from Howard to you AU. You
0: went to a lot of college.
1: I did.
0: <laughs> uh, what did you do after you graduated?
1: I, I did a lot of working. I worked for about six years in corporate America. I worked for Bell Atlantic. And um, I think after my sixth year, I realized that this was not what I wanted to do. when I got a fellowship at the Smithsonian. Mm. And I worked for um, Folklife. Uh, and I did some uh, production there. I was the program designer for uh, the Folklife Festival. I can't remember the number, but I remember the countries, Scotland and Cape Verde, which was kind of strange and wonderful to see the combination of, I don't know if you've ever been to the Folklife Festival. I'm not. So the Folklife Festival picks two countries, and then they have musicians, folk musicians and food Uh, journeymen, and they come, and you eat this wonderful food, and you hear stories, and you hear this music, and the festival lasts from the end of June till the 4th of July, and it's this really great Americana festival that they do in Washington, D.C., and so for two years, I worked on that, and then I worked on um, the, uh, what was it, it was Baseball in America, that's what it was, uh, for the History Museum, and we did some uh, talent programming for that, And the big, big thing that we did was we did the commemoration for World War II veterans, where we had people from all over the world come and celebrate the 50th anniversary of World War II. Um, After that, I went uh, with a friend of mine to California, and I worked for a school called Oakland School for the Arts. And that was really quite a wonderful thing. It was a combination of the um, Duke Ellington School for the Arts and the New York Art School. And basically, what we did is half of the day, the children did their reading, writing, arithmetic, and the other half of the day, the children learned whatever their art was. It was a stunning um, experience to really help children understand their artistic voice.
0: What kind of art were the children making?
1: Oh, my I'm God,'
0: more than finger. paint. No,
1: it was it was it was it was profound. Uh, we had students doing things like this, actually. They would create um, it wasn't podcasting at that time. This was like two thousand four. It was um, they'd have their own radio shows. They would create newspapers. Uh, they would create operettas. They created dance um, programs. I mean, it was it was it was stunning, and it was really kind of vanguard at the time. Lonnie Berry was the uh, director of school, and uh, he has some history here. In, uh, he went to Brown University, but he was such a visionary. But one of the things that was so profound about the way that the children got at it was that everybody created a new curriculum. So, And the curriculum was all connected, right? So if you were the math teacher, what you were doing is you were using the time period in the text from whatever the literature book was um, chosen. So at that time, it was every man. The year before, it had been Romeo and Juliet. And so all of the teachers got together and wrote the curriculum for the year. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is, is that out of a class of like 100, 92 went on to post-secondary Excellent. education. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So
0: April, what are you doing now?
1: Right now, I'm working for myself. I am the uh, co-director with Kai Cameron of the Langston Hughes Community Poetry Reading. And what we're doing is uh, trying to diversify that work from this one single event. We're in the process of writing curriculum and trying to establish a youth program. For the past three years, we've been working with uh, young people in Providence Eugene Bellany, who was in the article, is one of those young people we've been working with for three years. One of the readers who will be um, at the uh, Zoom Live event this Sunday, Jude Pei, is another one of those people. And just really trying to get young people to find their voice to write. Eugene, I think, already had her voice by the time she came to us. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you get an opportunity to read her poem, the, the she's brilliant. She's absolutely a brilliant child. Um, and you know, and just really trying to figure out how do we keep Langston Hughes in the mouths of people because he was so prolific, and he has a poem for every emotion that you could ever experience, and really talks about how um, you know this thing of race and class and gender is still a thing, 117 years later. Do you have a
0: favorite poem by him?
1: um i actually do not have a favorite poem but i know there are poems that i do like like i like i too let america be america again weary blues yeah Uh,
0: can you explain how you came to langston hughes and start uh the event in his honor
1: sure so the event is actually the brainchild of the executive director of the langston hughes center for arts and culture She ran the organization for about 15 years, and um, it is kind of like the survival of that work. And about five years ago, um, she gave it to me. (laughs) She called me on the phone and she said, okay, April, you got it. And I thought, huh? What? What is this? What do you mean? I'm helping you. Um, and so she kind of retired, and uh, Kai and I picked it up and have been able to, I think, bring it into the 21st century in a way that it hadn't been. Formerly, um, the poetry reading was at the RISD Museum, and um, it was a very um, highbrow event, actually. And one of the changes we made is we wanted to amplify the community aspect of it. Also, the year that we took it over, uh, Thou who shall not be named, our former uh, president, came into power. And so we felt like we had to be a balm in Gilead, you know, to just kind of <laughs> help people just understand what had just happened. And for the four years, just really kind of speak to that subtly and maybe not so subtly.
0: Can you tell the subtle and unsubtle ways?
1: Well, it what happened is we would do things. Uh, we would create these themes. So we would use Langston's words um, like "Good Morning Revolution." So we would have all these revolution poems or um, you know love poems to you know kind of help us understand that love is still here, and also you know this idea that. Um, what is happening now in the world is not OK. This idea that <laughs> white supremacy is a thing that needs to stay. In fact, it needs to go.
0: Is there any way the, some of the George Floyd protests will impact this year's Langston Hughes event? Uh,
1: I think with the decisions that we made in terms of how the program is going to go. Everyone who will be on the Sunday event will be a person who is a part of the BIPOC community. Uh, People who are allies will be a part of the second half of the we're calling the Band of 50. And um, I think that that was something that we discussed a little bit, but really decided that we needed to do that.
0: So how are they going to be involved in in the back?
1: So after the event, what we're doing is we're asking people, we're giving them a Langston Hughes poem, asking them to post it on their social media, and then hit us, and then we'll say, yay, see what you did? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we're also doing is we're allowing people, I had this really great conversation with a very long-time reader. His name is Mark Kohler, and he said, do you need me? And I felt like, no, I don't need you, but you know, I would love for you to read. And he is absolutely the sweetest person. And of course, we want him to read, but he looks like Santa Claus, right? (laughs) And I gave him the poem, Envoy to Africa. And he said, I can't stand that poem, because it really is, it really speaks to this notion of how (laughs) white folks went to Africa and thought that this colonial mentality and how you know, it's a snotty look at all the things, but it's a really good poem, and he would do such a great job, and so I convinced him to do it, and I said, and anyone who knows you, they know that that's not who you are, and you're amplifying Langston, and you're also amplifying an idea and an ideal that hopefully will die.
0: Has he given you a preview of how he's going to read it?
1: I suspect he's going to be very, very British. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect he's going to do some history about the poem, because that's the kind of uh, readers we uh, get. We get readers who have these relationships with Langston that we don't know about. And previously, what we would do is we would say, no, we don't want to hear your history. We don't want to know anything about it. We just want you to read the poem. But because we're doing it on social media, it's actually an opportunity for people to say whatever it is they want to say.
0: So you're letting them read the poem and also whatever else they want. Absolutely. Is there a a time limit you're giving them?
1: (laughs) No, because it's (laughs) their video, you know what I mean? But I also think that that's one of the fascinating things about it, is, is that the readers we would get, I mean last year we celebrated our 25th anniversary and I told everybody, we're going to stop at 50. We had 72 readers. And you know we had done this amazing thing. We, uh, uh, we contracted a poet to write a poem in dedication to the event, and she did a wonderful job. Emily Hazel is a brilliant, brilliant woman. And she wrote this Rhapsody. And the poetry reading went for on for a very very long time which is one of the reasons why we don't want people to t- we don't we don't care what your relationship is but we had to let it happen and you know it was the biggest audience we had ever had we had 500 people come to pcta's auditorium so you know one of the things that when we say we want to amplify community you have to amplify community so this is a really good way in this very strange pandemic portal of COVID-19 to amplify community.
0: What's some other ways that COVID has either impacted your event or the community?
1: The fact that we're not in person is really the biggest thing, but also the fact that we have to figure out how to engage the real vital component of the poetry reading, jazz music like how do you get the musicians to interact with the readers? And so that's actually not gonna happen, but what we, we will be able to do is we'll be able to feature uh, musicians. We have Leland Baker and Manny Escobar uh, will be our musicians this year, and we're really excited. We're also pretty excited about the fact that we had to hire a production team, <laughs> which is kind of crazy, but uh, we've partnered with House of Glitter And Matt and AM have been lifesavers to us, because the two old ladies, they speak English that we don't speak. (laughs) And it's a lot of that technical stuff. What's the production team adding this year? Well, there are, we have a website, right? Like that's something that we've never had before. We only had like Facebook, Twitter, and like that's that's really the biggest thing. But also just trying to um, amplify the reading in ways with through the social media that we weren't able to do before. Um by doing that, we, we didn't have to do a lot of the the postering or the advertising that we've done. Uh they were also able to help us kind of work with the Providence Public Library so that we can just really have a good show. Although I'm a little nervous. Why are you nervous? Because it's Zoom. <laughs> are you not a fan of Zoom? No. That's not what I will say, because Zoom has actually saved us in a lot of ways. But the the technological uh, challenges that can happen on a Zoom call, we are all quite familiar with. And I've lit candles and sprayed all kinds of lavender and incense so that those little demons don't come.
0: (laughs) Uh, What's the role of the jazz band, since everyone can't meet in person now? How are you going to integrate them with... Mostly online event?
1: Well, they'll have their own features. I mean, we're actually trying to work that out as we speak, but you know, they're gonna welcome the audience in, they're gonna have, we're gonna do kind of like a break, and they'll be able to play and the big thing is because again we're trying to amplify community at the end we're going to have kind of like a a party where they get to just jam for you know 20 minutes which is exciting
0: and this is all this is all on Sunday this upcoming Sunday yes
1: from 1 to 3 and yeah.
0: if people can't catch it live where you have a recording we will have maybe? a recording
1: so you're entering you're starting to enter into the english that i don't speak <laughs> right <laughs> my inner planner is asking how is
0: this going to work i need to know well know. <laughs> you
1: know we really but we really want people to come um you know we've got this website l cpr at no l dot that's it <laughs>
0: And that's where they can catch all these? Well,
1: that's where they can register, and they can can see the young people who have amplified our event. We've partnered with three Providence uh, Public Schools, uh, TAPA, Achievement First, and Noel Academy. And so for this whole week, students from Noel Academy have been um, reading poems. We assigned them some poems, and it's been a really great way to kind of include young people because we also three years ago we started doing a youth event um, because we became a part of Rhode Island Expansion Arts program and they really want us to engage young people and so we did and so we're not able to do that because you know you, no one is gathering so we were able to get those schools and have the teachers and those students engage in the poetry that way and make it a part of their curriculum
0: What's the, what's the reception of uh, young students been to poetry in general? I know it's kind of a, it, it is a thing. It is popular among young people. It's something that apparently passed my generation because <laughs> I woke up one day and all of a sudden all these, I guess, Zoomers now, we're going to poetry readings, and it's very right. popular among people online. And it just never seemed to catch on with people my age when I was growing up. But I am—I I do have no rhythm, so maybe that's why I. Just <laughs>
1: <to pay> attention <laughs> it. Well, what's,
0: I, what's been the reception both to Langston Hughes and poetry in general?
1: Well, I think for y- people who are younger than me, um, I feel like I'm the oldest person in this room. But what, how we've been able to engage people is through whatever is their identity, right? So if you are looking at I have a dream or you're looking at a dream deferred or if you're looking at I too, there's a piece of that, particularly if you're a child of color, which are usually the students we work with, it speaks to you. Although that's not exclusively the, fa- the case. I found some really soulful white kids who just really dug Langston Hughes in a way that stunned me. But I think it's about the voice, and I think it's about this generation really, not just discovering their voice, but knowing what to do with their voice and having a place to put it and deal with their thoughts in a way. Um, But I think in order to get that, you had to go through what happened with poetry. Like if you look at what Langston is doing in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, And it's jazz poetry, right? And he's in the scene scene of jazz, and he's going, he's in Harlem. He is listening to people like Duke Ellington and Count Basie and all of these amazing artists that are happening during the Harlem Renaissance and is in the rhythm of the community wherever he is or in the rhythm of the country wherever he is because Langston is indeed a global citizen. Um, I think that that's, what has to happen. And when you look at it, you know, 75 years later, that's how people see themselves. Right. And so it's a strange kind of symbiotic relationship, but you have to go through, you know, uh, what I say, the, the, um, the black arts movement, then you have to go through the hip hop movement and understand that there is this arc that is amazing that you can track, you know, you could track, the artwork of common to Langston Hughes. You can track the artwork of I can't remember of the guy. He just he want to pull a surprise out from California, and he's a hip hop artist. But the way that he writes and the way that he understands himself in relationship to community, it's very much like Langston. And I think that that's what the younger people are gleaming to. And I think what also surprises them is how relevant his words are. I mean, even though he's talking maybe about World War One or World War Two or Korea or Vietnam, or President Roosevelt, it's still relevant. Like there's a he he writes this poem message in this poem message to to the president, and it could be about Donald Trump, right? And that's what's frightening and scary about it about how we evolve and then not so much.
0: Which which president was he talking about?
1: He was talking about Roosevelt.
0: What ways? what, ra- what ways were he, was he talking about Roosevelt that could be applied to Donald
1: Trump? The fact that he was ignoring Americans in a way that you just can't, because they're not going anywhere. We're here. The, one of the um, kind of bedrock of the United States is is that we are supposed to be able to pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness, right? and for the leader of the country to try and stop that you can't you you you, <laughs> you, c- you cannot it's not the way the country was made to happen
0: was there anything specifically roosevelt did um that people could connect to white supremacy today even if maybe he hadn't mended or maybe he did
1: well i think it's also the time period i mean i think that roosevelt was probably progressive right um of his time but he wasn't the most progressive in his household, right? We know that his wife was probably the one who was most progressive oh, yeah. and, um, you know, and in his family, you know, just just what does it mean to be from New York and what does it mean to uh, have a lot of money and then be in leadership on a national level? And I think that those are the things that are, you know, you have to understand that in the United States of America, You've got to make room. And I think that that's what Langston Hughes was talking about in most of his poems. You've got to make room. You've got to make room not just for black people. You've got to make room for everyone.
0: I I know you spoke uh, 10 minutes ago about the president who shall not be named. Uh, Are (laughs) you personally feeling better now that the president who shall not be named is no longer president?
1: So the answer to that question is a quick yes. I think there is an uncoupling that has to happen that's going to take some time. Yeah, I'm
0: sensing a but here.
1: Yeah, because there is a but. You know, he did so much harm. He did so much harm, and, um, and he led people to do so much harm. And those people are still in power and saying really harmful things and doing really awful things. You know, the, um, <laughs> what happens on uh, January 6 is evidence to, That, um, yeah, he's gone, but he is not forgotten. Okay, okay.
0: Um, I think that's all my questions. Was there anything else you want to talk about before we talk about the issue? No. Okay, excellent. Uh, April, you are our guest editor, which is uh, a role I should probably explain to the readers who only pick us up occasionally. Uh, Twice, two, three times a year, we'll do a guest editor. We did uh, Christopher Johnson last year for uh, last February's issue, our last Black History Month issue. We did uh mike in the room samantha can correct me but fry. we did samantha Cullen fry for we did an indigenous people's issue uh november 2019 that's not about right it seems like 10,000 years ago <laughs> um we approached you for for being guest editor can you tell us your process you assembled this group of this group of black women to write about you know xyz topics can you take us through a process of who you chose why you chose them and how you organize the things that are in our feature section this month
1: So when I received the email from um, Emily, one of the things that I thought about was our discussion and our conversation really was about where are the women's voices and where are the black women's voices. And Emily heard that. And we had a subsequent conversation about reaching out to people and how you have to invite people into the room. We talked, I guess, later on in the year, and she hadn't had too much luck. And so I had really forgotten about it and the idea of maybe seeing people of color more amplified in the issue, in the magazine. Um,
0: Uh, When did Emily first approach you? uh,
1: So I told you last year I wrote. Uh, for Christopher, yes. and we, I interviewed Rose Weaver. So last year was when we had the conversation. Okay. Um, so this year, I had kind of run away from home in December, and I was in Ghana. Where
0: and brought you to Ghana?
1: <laughs> I have been to Ghana before. In 2019, they had this you know, uh, come back home movement. And uh, that's not the name of it, but that's how it felt like to me. And so I knew that they were not suffering from COVID the same way we were in the United States, and I just needed to leave for a little bit.
0: So you braved that plane? I'm terrified to go on a plane or anywhere right now.
1: Can I just tell you, sitting here with you right now, I have had nine COVID tests So in the last <laughs> 30 days. so. <laughs>
0: I get tested once a week, just as good
1: practice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've had my test today I also. But... um Could you have it downstairs? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and I just really have been thinking about, you know, what are the things that I want to do that I haven't been doing? And anybody who knows me knows that I've been wanting to write. But I also like to do things in cooperation with other folks. So, um, you know, I just wanted to write, what would it be like to write with friends? Now, a lot of these women I have a relationship with, Chantel Nelson Washington is my cousin, and Valerie Tutson I've known for over 30 years, and I feel like she's my sister. But a lot of the other women are women that I don't necessarily know that well, but I know what they do in community And I also wanted an opportunity to have a direct conversation about Anna Julia Cooper because I think that she is one of those people in history who we don't talk about enough. And she was profound in the development of black women's life in uh, civic and uh, community work. So when we talked about it after I, (laughs) received the email and was like, what is going on? What happened? Um, I talked about how the quote, the the Anna Julia Cooper quote is what I wanted to use, but I didn't really know who I would invite. And honestly, it was really hard to try and select it. And to be honest, I hadn't forgotten who I had invited. At one point, I said to Emily, I said, oh my God, I I forgot to add a name of some, oh no, can we make it work? And she said, yes, we can make it work. And she really did. The issue was so beautiful, and I'm so humbled to be a part of it.
0: I know you you chose the quote, and the quote was sort of your guiding theme. Can you tell me how you found and chose the quote from Anna Julie Cooper? And then can you tell us a little bit about her?
1: So I'm glad you didn't ask me to say the quote, because I I always forget it. It is on the cover. Right, I know. Right, right. So when I was at AU, um, I had a professor. Her name was Lisa Beth Hill. And I had told her that I wanted to be a historian, but I didn't want to study dead white men. I wanted to study things that meant something to me. And so she had just gotten her uh, doctorate in women's history. and we started reading this book um, by Paula Giddings called When and Where I Enter. And it was about the Black Women's Club movement. And during that class, um, we learned about Anna Julia Cooper, Ida B. Wells Barnett, uh, the Grimke sisters. um, And they just were these quite amazing women. And they were a part of the Du Bois talented 10th, right? So there is this sensibility of a specific class that these women occupied. But Anna Julia Cooper was so interesting, just like Ida B. Wells was so interesting, because she was born into slavery and became the fourth woman to get a PhD. There was something about that trajectory that was not just very American, but just very I don't know, it's still right now when I think about it, it's like, huh, that's amazing, right? So yeah.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how she got that PhD? What was her path from uh, being a slave towards getting it?
1: To being enslaved? So she was born through um, the relationship of her mother and her mother's uh, slave master. She was born in North Carolina and started going to the normal school. I don't know if you know what normal schools are. Normal schools were set up so that um, former slaves uh, could learn how to read and write and learn how to um, have, uh, usually they were agricultural schools, so they could learn how to farm. And from there, she um, attends school at um, Oberlin. And how she gets to Oberlin is this really strange course of events. She gets to Oberlin because she's an amazing writer, right? And so the normal school did their job and she was able to get there. And that's where she meets Mary Church Terrell, who is another one of those names who are a part of the club women's movement. And from there, her time at Oberlin is where she shifts and changes. And she not only becomes a gifted writer, but she starts to look at community in a way that I don't think she had before. And we think it's because of the influence of Mary Church Terrell. And she becomes a teacher and she teaches at Wilberforce College And then, about a year of teaching, she goes back to Oberlin and gets her master's degree in mathematics, and then moves to Washington, DC. And then from there is where she understands. She starts teaching at M Street School. But her idea of really embedding herself into community and trying to get young people to understand their relationship with education, their relationship to their community as a whole, that's where it blossoms. She and some of the women I mentioned uh, create the Colored Women's Club movement. And from there, they are able to arc out this relationship with community and how to do well and how to have aid societies, how to uh, have churches involved in education of young people.
0: You said she was the fourth woman in the nation to get her PhD. Yes. What did she study when she got it?
1: She studied history and she got it from, uh, she had started school. I think it was, was it Harvard? I think it was Harvard, but she had to leave school because she had, uh, taken custody of her brother's children. And 12 years later, she took her work and went to the Sobon and uh, wrote a paper, or a dissertation rather, on the effects of slavery.
0: In, in America? In America, yeah. So, so uh, she had a master's in math. What did she study in her undergrad again?
1: I didn't say. It's a BA. I don't remember what she studied. I think I might have written it down in the article. I think. No, I didn't. I think it was English, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I think so it she was went dealing. from
0: English to math. Mm-hmm. which was a big change. Mm-hmm. And then she went and got her PhD in history mm-hmm. in France at the...
1: Uh, Sobon. I, I know. know. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, even now, say, yeah. it's amazing, right? Like, when you think about it, I wouldn't want to get my degree in yeah. English and then in math yeah. and then in history. Ooh, not me. <laughs>
0: Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the writers you had in our featured section. Which, 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 which one of them or uh, what ones of them uh, stand out to you now, now that the issue has gone to print?
1: It was important for me to get Jessica Brown, right? Because people understand her as an uh, activist, and people understand her as an artist and as a host. But she's a builder. And what I said to her is I said, the way that you understand yourself as an artist, the way that you understand yourself um, through the work that you create and your voice that way, there's a specificity to it. And it's because you build things. And I need you to talk about that. And she said, Oh, And then there's Nico Merritt, right? So Nico runs uh, Sankofa Community Connection. I think that that's what the name of her organization is. We're in the uh, Expansion Arts cohort together. Sorry, Nico. Um, But she has a brood of children. She just recently gave birth to this absolutely beautiful child, but she's running a nonprofit and it's a new nonprofit. And she is doing such amazing things. And I said to her, I said, you know, the way that you understand your leadership is really through the way that you understand motherhood. And she said, how did you know? I said, because I've been paying attention. And then um, there's Tammy Brown, who I don't really know that well at all, but I know that she has really done this when and where I enter moment where she has engaged in community in a way and has made such uh i don't know like a boom and it was interesting because the way that she wrote hers was kind of the way that i understand myself she didn't write from her standpoint she wrote through the standpoint of other women who are doing activist work but it's her activism actually that for me was most provocative and then you know i really wanted to talk about the ways that black women engage in the culture right so our spirituality our activism and just the way that we think. Because it's not something that the greater culture even really has any idea about, because we don't have platforms or spaces where we can have those conversations in uh, the public purview.
0: Uh, Can you talk a little more about the spirituality aspect? When I was reading through the section, we were proofing it on Monday, actually. I noticed there was a lot more, not religious tone, but there was a lot more uh, uh, mentions and people invoking it and talking about it more than I was expecting when uh, we first pitched this issue. Can you talk a little bit about the role of spirituality in this?
1: Well, I would say that I can only speak for me, and I probably can speak for Chantel. But the way that I understand myself as a person is because of my relationship to God, right? Um, The way that I pray, the way that I have interpersonal relationships, the way that I practice grace and mercy. Um, And a lot of these women, I would say, Come from a similar background, right? And the idea that it was our spirituality that keeps us together and stops us from either killing somebody or ourselves is profound and deep and wide, right? And it's not something that, particularly the women who are in this issue, um, they take lightly. Their spirituality is very important to them. It's very, it's very much a part of their identity. Even if uh, the women would say, well, you know, I don't believe in God. That's OK. That's actually not the prerequisite for you to understand what I was asking you to do, or even understanding yourself as a woman of color, a African-American woman, black woman, however you understand yourself.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the cover art and the artist, uh. Angela Newman?
1: Angel was like the ram in the bush. I asked Angel to do this and she said yes and we hadn't had a conversation. And I then said, okay, it needs to be about Anna Julia Cooper and that's it, that's all I said. But what I did say to her is I wanted her to think about the piece of artwork that she had created that's outside of the Water Fire Arts Center because it talks about the transatlantic slave trade and it's quite exquisite. Now what Angel did I still it takes my breath away. It made me scream when I first saw it. It is a combination of everything, the Beyonce glasses, the third eye, the the head, the hair braid looking like a crown. And then the transatlantic trade all over her body.
0: And what's it, what's the writing on the background? That
1: that's is the, that the that's the quote. Only the black woman, in quiet, hmm, undignified, can say. Only the black woman can say. When and where I enter, the whole Negro race enters with me. Yeah.
0: Is, is this actually a picture of Anna Julia? Cooper? It
1: is a picture of Anna Julia Cooper, and then she just put. Um, The The Beyonce glasses, she put her piece of art on top of it. She moved the eye so that the eye is the third eye, which is powerful. My mother, when she saw it, said, she got the third eye. Yes, she did. I said, I know. It's I've, just so good. Uh, can you
0: talk about Angel Newman's uh, the, the mural she did behind the Waterfire Arts Center? Can you describe that in a little more detail?
1: So, I mean, I, I remember looking at Facebook pictures when she was making it, and it wasn't until I saw it up front that I was like, oh, my God. She literally drew the transatlantic trade. And it was just like, I mean, she entered in uh, the, the continent she included Cape Verde, and she also made it something that is very much Rhode Island, right, to include Cape Verde, to include uh, the Caribbean, and the colors, it's so vibrant, and I think she did it in a weekend, she's so gifted.
0: I'm trying to find a picture of it now because I don't think I have seen it.
1: Oh, you must see it, it was online, it's, it is, it's exquisite, and you know, and she gives these little markers, right, like, She's got this thing about the ship that's carrying 56 slaves, 40 ounces of gold dust, and 900 pounds of pepper, right? And then, I mean, she's just, she's talking about what it was, you know, the capitalism behind it. You know, when I was in Ghana, I went to the Elmina Castle, and I went into the castle, and I thought about the, the, the psychic, uh, relationship the world has with the transatlantic slave trade. And there is no way that the world can make amends to it. You can't, right? Because it is the bedrock for modern day capitalism, right? And so what do you do with that? What do you do with that? How do you compensate that? And it is when I saw her mural, I thought, okay, they're try- these young people, they're trying to tell us something. It's amazing.
0: Uh, can you explain uh, what you mean when you say that uh, sort of the genesis of modern American capitalism is in the slave trade?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, when you think about what it bankrolled, right? Brown University, Harvard University, you know, all the Ivies, banks, you know, railroads, <laughs> Um, you know, how we look at money, how we look at, um, the naval industry, how we look at just every aspect of the economy gets its beginnings in this slave economy.
0: Can you explain its specific impact on say colonial Rhode Island? We bring them more local?
1: well i mean that's how we get brown university right <laughs> i mean <laughs> what more what what more answer? else are you looking for <laughs> a less
0: obvious answer because i'm pretty sure the people <laughs> listening will know brown immediately uh, is there's uh newport or bristol can you talk a little bit about well i mean there were slate
1: the the that's how we get you know, the name of the plantations, right? That's how, even though people would say, no, that's not what it meant. No that's problem. exactly what it means. Thank you very much. Um, it is also the industry that creates a Rhode Island that has money. Like we don't even understand how wealthy Rhode Island was because of their involvement in the slave trade, right? So we couldn't have slavery at the same capacity as South Carolina, but all those boats that we brought in, right? and all those uh, textiles that we brought, all, you know, and again, banking, modern banking, you know, so I guess for me, um, that's what she was invoking with the image, and it really is a reminder that we have as a society, as a greater society, we have to really not just reconcile, but we have to figure out how do we how do we make it plain. Did you see, did Mike you see the, the mural, yeah? Yeah. Mike it's the mural. it's amazing.
0: His laptop. Mike, your laptop is so heavy, take it back.
1: <laughs> how do you carry
0: that around? It's I, I amazing. We've, we, we've talked a lot uh, I'll, uh <laughs> I'll look at it in more detail later. Uh, you've talked a lot about Black women uh, and their role in this issue. What is uh, w- one of the writers in the features is Justice, is Justice Amir. What's the role of um, trans issues in this issue in Black History Month? Can you extrapolate on that a little bit?
1: So when I asked Justice to write, You know, I love Justice in a very real way. We sat on a panel together, and I thought that she was quite extraordinary. Um, I think what I wanted her to do is I wanted her to just say, what does it feel to be seen, right? Because there is this idea And I mean, I'm not trans. I can't speak to it specifically. But you are what you call yourself, right? And I think I've always believed that. And so that's it. There's like, there's nothing else to it. You are what you call yourself. And so, and I think that that's actually a very American idea, right? Yeah. Don't you think? And so um, I just wanted Justice to talk about that. And what she produced was like, what? <laughs> it was like a prayer and and a, and a praise poem. It was so beautiful. And I think a lot of the women were just extraordinarily humble to be asked. And then what they proceeded to create was like, it really made me cry. Just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what did you do? And... But what it really does is prove the thesis of, you know, when black women are at the table or in an issue or just able to be free to say what they say or do what they do, the world becomes a better place because it is a voice. It is uh, a place that is silenced in a lot of ways. I mean, the fact that we could actually say that our current president probably would not be president if it weren't for his vice president, Kamala Harris, that's not a push, but there's, there's something that she brings to the conversation, to the world. And I think that that's true for this issue. And I think it's just true. When the people who are silenced the most are brought to the opportunity to have a voice, we are all blessed. We are all made better.
0: Uh, how much input did you have uh, when you assigned these articles uh, how much input or how much input or planning did you have when you told them i want an article did you determine the topic did they determine the topic how much
1: so how much i gave them, them i gave them the topic like i wanted i wanted justice to write about uh being a black woman right i wanted her to do that but that was it what i really wanted people to understand was the anna julia cooper co- quote quote And if it resonated with them and for everybody, it did, right? Because there's something about what I just said, right? What Anna Julia Cooper's thesis is, is, is that when black women are themselves and come in as their full selves, their whole community comes with them, right? Their entire community comes. And we see that practiced in what happened in Atlanta. We see that practice in what happens when you have Joe Biden win presidency, right? You see it in this article. You all just said that you hadn't had such a buzz about this until these voices were amplified. That's correct. And I think that that's just true.
0: Um, that is all my questions. OK. Um, Mike, do you have anything else we should cover? Obviously, we'll let this part out. No. but um,
1: I think you hit everything that I wanted to know
0: run out of time. Is there anything else? That April, do you have anything else you want to plug? besides? I, I can't guarantee this will be out on Sunday, but no. is there else, we can boost it online on our social. Is there anything you want to, anything else you want to plug while you're here?
1: You know, I have, n- I just, you know, want them, people to come to our social media and pay attention to <laughs> us, you know. We have that one yeah, too. Yeah, just come to pay attention to Langston Hughes Community Poetry Reading. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and our website is l hughes. CPR.org. <laughs> hey, uh, the glitter
0: goddess? Uh, uh, that's our partner.
1: Okay. okay. So <laughs> right. It's our partner.
0: I, I can't tell you the amount of times so I plugged a website and then the website doesn't work.
1: I know. Uh, it's quite a drag. I am, uh, again, I am so, uh, you can't know. This did something for me. That I'm still processing.
0: You're still processing. Do you know what you're going to do after this? This is a big triumph. Uh, Do you know what you're going to do after this?
1: I'm going to continue to write.
0: Uh, Well, obviously for Motif, but outside Motif, where else?
1: Well, you you know, it's funny. I was talking about something with someone uh, yesterday. You know, I went to seminary, and um, what didn't you do? I know we don't have enough time. (laughs) Parking's only two hours. Exactly. Um, Oh, God. Speaking of parking, I didn't, the thing didn't work. Anyway, the gods will save me. Um, And so when I was in seminary, again, I didn't really want to study Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther, Calvin. That was not of interest to me. But who was of interest to me was Mary, Jesus' mother. And so I went to the Catholic seminary, found a Catholic minister who was a Marian scholar and spent like a year and a half studying Mary and came to the conclusion that while we understand Mary through the Renaissance in one way, I suspect that she is closer to me in not just her look, but in how she did what she did. She didn't want to and she said excuse me and i thought god that sounds like grace brown
0: <laughs> awesome awesome um anything else you want to plug before we go i know you plugged no. your website anything outside all right april thanks no. for coming on the show thank thanks you. for doing our issue we are madly madly in love with it
1: thank you you're very welcome <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Between the Lines. We'd like to give a shout-out to our sponsors. Our sponsors are Blue Cross Blue Shield, R1 Go-Kart Racing, and Studio 121. Have a good week.